we tell stories that engage, inspire, and have a lasting impact? How do we turn thoughts and ideas into effective and authentic storytelling? How can we use stories to make a difference in our work, lives, and communities? I'm your host, Camille DePutter, and together we'll explore what it means to tell stories with heart. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Storytelling with Heart podcast. I am your host, Camille DePutter, and with me today is Rochelle Moulton. A leading voice in the independent consulting space, Rochelle Moulton helps soloists build vibrant authority businesses. Rochelle earned her consulting stripes by leading introverted brainiacs at two powerhouse consulting firms and turning around the failing consulting arm of a Fortune 500 company. She built three professional firms from scratch, including selling one to Arthur Anderson. Rochelle is a champion of independent professionals, aka soloists. She hosts Soloist Women, co-hosts the Business of Authority podcast, and wrote the book, The Authority Code, How to Position, Monetize, and Sell Your Expertise. I've followed Rochelle for years, enjoying her newsletters, her podcasts, her book, and her approach to thought leadership generally. So I'm super happy to have her on the show today. Thank you for joining me, Rochelle. Thank you, Camille. I'm so excited to be here. Amazing. Um, So I thought we could begin by um, hearing a little bit about your own journey. How did you get to where you are today, focusing on serving the audience that you serve, soloists? Well, it wasn't a straight path, probably like everyone. Um, so I spent the first uh, roughly 10 years of my career with a big global consulting firm. And eventually I made partner um, at a young age, which is really cool. And I loved it, loved consulting, loved everything about it until after I made partner. And what I realized was that all the things that I did to get me to partner were not the things that were valued going forward. Some were, but there was an overlap of kind of twisty corporate stuff that I really didn't enjoy. So I thought about it a long time, but eventually I pulled the trigger and I started an independent firm. And we came up with this idea of um, hiring flex, what we called flexibly scheduled MBA women. There were some men over time, but we started with women and they were mostly moms. And they were women who had been in the big firms like me. And most of them had uh, gone out on maternity leave and come back. And they just couldn't, surprise, surprise, work 60 to 80 hours a week and be on a plane and do all those things. So they would cut back a little bit. But what would happen is the firm would tell them, well, I'm sorry, you're not working hard enough. You can't make partner doing that. Um, You're not valuable enough. And they were careful about how they couched it, but that was the message. So I just decided that it was ripe to do this a different way. So I started this. Um, we had no problem finding women who wanted to work with us. There were <laughs> a lot of women who said, you know, we want something different. And But the surprise part was that the Fortune 500 audience that was my bread and butter inside the big firm was also ripe for it. Mm-hmm. So it was great on so many levels. And then... At one point, Arthur Anderson called us in because they wanted to have more women in partnerships in their uh, tax group. And so we met with them. We did this project and they basically made us an offer we couldn't refuse. And they bought the firm. 
And so that was, that was a whole thing. Um, And so going into Anderson, I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about that. Um, But what I did was I worked primarily with tax partners, coaching them on how to grow their business. It was really fun. And then Enron happened. And so that was all over. I started my first solo consulting business. So my second business, my first solo business, I just, it wasn't something that was working for me. I like the solo part, but the concept I had wasn't, it was actually ahead of its time. It wasn't working. So I went, I took a, another job job as I call them. And I went inside a fortune 500 company. And my job was to turn around this consulting division that was failing. Um, so I did that. Um, and I said, no to self. Building something is a lot more fun than fixing something that's broken. So I now I focus on building. And when that was over, that was it. I just said, I want to be a soloist from now forward. And um, I didn't use the word soloist for a long time. Um, I did say solo. Um, I think I called myself Rochelle Moulton and team for, a, a, you know, a nanosecond. Mm-hmm. Um But yeah, I really veered into this soloist space because I felt like there were so many people serving boutiques and it was, it was an interesting exercise serving boutiques, but it was usually you had partners that were disagreeing and it was a very long process. Working with soloists was exciting because you work with them, they make the decision. They don't go to a committee. They don't go to a board. They make the decision. So yeah, so I've been doing that ever since. Okay. And so as you, I'm just curious, as you went through all these different transitions and shifts, then, uh, you know, looking back, it kind of sounds like, oh, you've done a lot of cool stuff. Was, was that process? Are you somebody who can sort of go with the flow of change and stuff? Or was it a, a real roller coaster? I'm, I am very resilient. And my early life taught me that I'm, hugely resilient. Now that doesn't mean I enjoyed every aspect of that ride because I'd be lying if I said that I didn't, but I just find that there's, um, what's that expression? You know, when you, there's, there's always a pony underneath a big pile of crap. (laughs) (laughs) I'm, I'm looking for the pony. And in each of those transitions, there were, um, people that I met who I still keep in touch with. There were people who inspired and energized me. There were um, people who, you know, I'm still in touch with many years later. Um, And there were things I learned. Like, here's an irony. Um, When I was in the big firm, one of the things that I did was I worked on uh, mergers and acquisitions. And I was the person that would come in and work on the people side of the organization. So crazy stuff happening, people losing their jobs, people getting angry, playing power games, all of that. And I, you know, I hadn't done um, any of that for a while. And then I'm at Anderson when Enron happened. So I'm on the inside Mm-hmm. of a change instead of the consultant from the outside. It's really easy to deal with that when you're from the outside because at the end of the day, you go home. Um, but yeah, dealing with it from the inside, I always thought that was kind of the uh, universe's way of getting that at me yeah. for not having had to experience all of the lows that some of my clients had, had experienced. Yeah, it's kind of like forced empathy. Here, well, now yes. you know, it's like, yeah, that's really cool though to be able to have sort of both sides of that experience. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't regret it. I mean, I, again, I didn't like it. It was not fun. There was no part of it that was fun, but it really taught me a few things, which I think mm-hmm. were important. Mm-hmm. 
And then since being doing what you're doing now, have you, how, how long have you been doing what you're doing now? Actually, I should ask uh, 15, that. 16 years. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So that's a good chunk of time in that span of time. Have you ever thought again about pivoting or going back to a more corporate space or not being solo? No. <laughs> That's the easy answer. No. I well, I, I shouldn't say that. There was a moment, um, I think it was around 2010, maybe, and I was in LA um where I didn't have as big a network. And I did toy with it. I did go through a set of interviews. And I remembered sitting at one of them because their idea of an interview was I was at a client event and they wanted to see like how I would act. And I remembered sitting there, my eyes big as saucers going, oh my God, I don't want to do this. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do this. I couldn't wait to get out of there. So I did do that. Um, but other than that, no. And whenever I get an idea that I feel like I need to, to follow, it's usually some kind of an entrepreneurial thing. Like mm -hmm. I, I invested in an investment property a few mm -hmm. years ago and, and renovated that. So I'll, I'll do that, but no, I don't, I don't want to work for somebody else. Yeah. I, I don't want somebody else's vision. Yeah. Once you're able to do that for yourself, it's uh, it, I would think it would be hard to go back and I'm excited to get into your, your real specialty on around authority building, because I think it, relates very well. Obviously you serve soloists, you know, people who are independent professionals and uh, have that opportunity to really fully own their voice and their brand and all of that. But obviously there's a ton of crossover for people who are leaders or want to lead or increase their leadership in any kind of situation that we could imagine really. I think, you know, I try to Think about folks who might be in a nonprofit or in a business or a small business, or even who want to lead more in a certain space, communities, et cetera. And I think there's just so much that applies across the board here. So maybe that's what we jump into next, um, just to talk about authority a little bit. How do you define authority? What, what, tell me more about this word and how you use it. Well, maybe I'll... I'll tell it this way, which is I used to think that authority, and we're talking about market authority, not like power authority, that it was all about pushing your expertise out in the public so people would hire you or buy your stuff. But what I came to realize is that authority is really about value creation. Because when you have authority, you have the power to reach, influence, and impact your market segment. And you you get to choose. And this is what I love about this is it becomes your choice. So you get to choose who inspires and energizes you. Who do you want to serve, right? Who do you want to work with? Um, what revolution do you want to read, lead? And especially people in the nonprofit space. I mean, there's a revolution for you, right? It's, yeah. it's claiming it. And you get to balance making money, with also having free time and flexibility, i.e., I think of that as the new definition of wealth. It's not just money. Mm -hmm. It's money, it's free time, and it's the flexibility to use it. And then you also get to operate more often, hopefully all the time, in your genius zone, 
right? Because when you have that authority, you, you're actually narrowing. This is what scares people sometimes. You're actually narrowing what you're focusing on, but assuming that you're aligning this with your genius zone, it's amazing as you start to move into doing more and more of what you're good at and letting the other stuff fall away. Hmm. And then the last piece, which is really for the people who have their own business, is that you can charge based on the value you create. And what that means is that you can decouple what you deliver from your time. So you're not charging X dollars an hour. You are charging based on the result that you deliver. And where you're delivering transformational results, there's no limit on what you can earn and you're making real transformations for your clients. So it's a win-win situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's so much cool stuff that you said there and a number of things that I I would like to unpack a little bit. And so, um, first of all, the, the idea of genius zone, can you explain what that means? Yes. So it's funny because I, I, I thought I just like made this word up and I just read a book that was written around the time I thought I made it up. So, um, the word comes from Gay Hendricks and his book, um, about upper limits. And this idea is that we have four zones of competence and we have a zone of incompetence, which are basically the things we suck at. We have a zone of competence where, you know, we do them okay, but there's lots of other people that can do it and do it better. And then the tricky one is the zone of excellence because it's something we're really, really good at, but there are still other people who can do it as well or better. And that brings me to you know your question. The zone of genius is what's left. It's the things that only you can do in a way that only you do them. And I relate it to also to the concept of flow, that that's kind of a sign that you're, you're in your genius zone is when time just passes and you just don't realize it either because you're just having fun with it, or it could be that you're so engrossed in a complexity, like maybe you're working on solving a problem or figuring something out that you look up and all of a sudden four hours have just gone mm-hmm. by in a nanosecond. Mm-hmm. So it's that genius zone. And, you know, part of the reason why I think having a soloist business is such a cool way to go is that there's nobody to prevent you from going into your genius zone except you, mm-hmm. right? You've got this opportunity to say no to things that other people could do versus the things that you can do better than mm-hmm. anybody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it is an amazing thing. And by the way, I really enjoyed that book as well. Gay Hendricks's book uh, about upper limits it was really interesting. Yeah, yeah, it was a really good book. The the um, you know, it's like the if you have the the freedom to be able to define this for yourself, that is a really wonderful thing. But it also means okay, now it's up to me <laughs> to figure it <laughs> out and define it. For yourself. Um, yes. Uh, in a previous podcast, I had uh, Molly Galbraith on, who is a, a friend and a client of mine. And she talked about, she runs a business called Girls Gone Strong. She talked about the moment which, uh, you know, she and her business partner were sitting down and going, okay, what do we do better than anybody else out here? Because it, this had been a kind of a, a bit of a social movement turned business. And they were trying to really figure out how do we run this business successfully and narrow in what we do and focus on what we do. 
And they eventually sat down and asked themselves that question along with some mentorship and so on and came up with an answer. What are your thoughts on like, how can people figure out where exactly their authority lies? And in terms I often use, it's like, it's like, what do you want to be known for? Okay. So I'm going to say not to be afraid of the V word and V is for vision. And I know like we say vision and people get all intimidated. Oh, I don't know what my vision is, but your vision can be really simple. It's how do you want to live? What kinds of people do you like to be around? What kind of environment feels good to you? And when you start to think about that, and it's one of the things I do with clients and it's, I love it when they create the world. You know, it's like literally design the world you want to live in, your little insular world. What does that look like for you? How much money are you making? Where are you living? Uh, Do you have a a love relationship? What does that look like? Do you have kids? Do you have pets? Are you traveling? What are you doing for fun? Um, Those kinds of things. And when you start getting clear about what you want, that starts to put you down the path of the genius zone. Another way to look at it is to do almost an autopsy, if you will, of the top, I would say five to 10, usually people get it about around four to six, but it might take 10, where you go back to the projects that you've done. And even if you're a full-time employee, you typically have some kinds of projects. So look at them and say, okay, what did I like about that project? What did I not like? And again, you're looking at what was the outcome? Who did I do it for? Who was on the team? Maybe you love the team, but there was one just off the wall person that you didn't like. So you're starting to identify, okay, so that off the wall person is not a person who's going to energize me. What about that person bothered me? So so in a way, sometimes it's you're defining what you don't like mm-hmm. as well as what you do like. Because here's the thing, your genius zone, I believe, in order to really serve you, you want it to be things that you love. And I'll give you an example. One of the things I did in my prior life is I was amazing at taking two partners in a business that were at war with each other and getting them to come to some agreement on where they were going to go. I was really, really good at that. I I think it probably was in my genius zone. I don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole anymore. I just don't. And so I'm probably not that good at it anymore since I haven't done it for a while. But some for somebody else, that could be perfect. So to get back to your question, so the focus on the genius zone, a lot of it is what do you like versus what do you don't like? Who energizes you? Like when you have a, a an interaction, which people do you walk away from feeling you know, inspired and not just in like a big woo-woo sense of inspiration, but you're, you're like, oh, wow, they've got a really amazing thing that they want to do. Like I actively look for that when I take on new clients mm-hmm. is what they're doing. Does it sound inspiring in some way? Like what's their vision? What do they want to do in the world? It's really getting clear on that. And I just want to say it doesn't happen in a nanosecond. It just doesn't. And I will also argue that it probably for most people changes over the course of their life. Like the example I gave you, I I think maybe I could have been like the world's best person at that. Who knows? But I dropped it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I picked up other things. So it's, it's that journey. And I think that 
Um, what I like about Gay Hendricks' book is he defines that up, upward limit as a constant upward spiral where you're doing better and better because you're spending more of your time in your genius zone. Mm-hmm. You've made a number of important points there, including that it it includes what you don't do or don't want to do. And I think it's a, a really good point as well that there can be a lot of emphasis on strengths and what you are good at or capable of, but just because you're really good at something doesn't mean that's where you want to spend the bulk of your time or build your authority around or, or yeah. you know, like you said, it could sort of, you know, you could argue that it's kind of part of your genius zone, but it, if you don't actually really love it, then it's probably not what you want to be focusing on. Yeah, because if you're not loving it, you're probably not interested in honing your skill at it because it's not like we just snap our fingers and go, oh, yes, that's in our genius zone. Usually what happens is that we try something and we go, wow, I really like that. I want to do more of that. And so it's still your genius zone because of the way it energizes you and the way you're you're um, you lose track of time with doing it. You may not be the best at it yet. Right. You, that you have to work at. So it's this constant um, strive. Well, that makes it sound horrible. I started to say constant striving to get to the right. genius. Zone, but I actually think that's a joyous journey because you're just right. constantly going, oh, do I want to do that? No, I don't. I, mm-hmm. I'm going to offload that to someone else so that I can do this other thing that I would rather do with my time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned that it can can grow or change or evolve. I'm curious if you can elaborate on that more too, especially just with the the idea of of authority as it pertains to your brand, your expertise. You know, how as as we go through our our lives and our work, as we want to, if we want to evolve, if we want to say, okay, well, this is the the thing I was known for more before, but I kind of want to go over here now or experiment with something else. Like how can we lay a a strong claim to our authority or, you know, the stake in the ground that we want to put there? Here's here's the revolution I want to lead and like have some commitment to that, but then also allow ourselves to just grow and change and experiment as human beings. That is the eternal question, isn't it? (laughs) That's a really big question. Um, Yeah, I I guess the way the way that I kind of think about that is that. First of all, I feel like it's easier for me and for other people who are in these expertise style businesses because there's nothing to prevent us from tomorrow going, ooh, that looks like a really interesting rabbit hole. I'm going to go down that one and I'm going to see what happens. And, and then when you come out, maybe it's you write a blog post or something and that's it. Or maybe you come up with something and you go, wow, look at this. So, so I think part of it is always being curious, but the other piece is not letting ourselves get so attached to who we were mm. that we can't move forward. And, you know, when I was in a big consulting firm, I had built up a personal brand 
And I, I had done a lot of national speaking on some topics. And when I started my own firm, first of all, they weren't really interested in having me on the podium because I didn't have a big fancy firm name next to my name mm-hmm. the way I had before. But second is I didn't have the time. Like I couldn't make that pay off because going to speak in mm-hmm. Philadelphia wasn't necessarily going to bring me revenue. Right. So, right. you know, you deal with all of that. And so I sloughed off my old self way faster than I thought I would because, you know, it, it wasn't going to help on the day to day. I had a financial reason not to do that anymore because it would not bring me uh, revenue. And I had people to feed. I had mouths to feed at the firm. I, I couldn't, you know, afford in quotes to go off on a lark. I needed to be really focused. You know, it's, it's kind of the more inner personal stuff of all of this too, that as we, you know, we can look at it just as sort of sheer strategy and tactics, but I think particularly for soloist or, you know, a small business owner or somebody who's really, you know, a founder or something of that, where we are so much of, we, we put so much of ourselves into our, our business. It, it is tied to us very much. So it's not this yeah. kind of impersonal, disconnected sort of thing. And I, I feel that strongly with personal brands as well. It's like, we want to be authentic. We want this to be connected to who we are, but I, I would never want to feel like then I, I couldn't change because I had to adhere to something that I myself chose 10 or 15 or 20 or two years ago. Well, what you just described, I think, is particularly hard for people in big corporates where they're running a function of some kind and maybe they have a big idea. And let's assume that their corporation is okay with that, but they've still got to go out there and talk about that idea while they're, you know, they're running the ranch back at home and they're interacting with others when their organization experiences the positive benefits from that it's really hard to shift, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, there's that. And that's why particularly for um, people in high positions in corporations and in larger nonprofits, especially, is I would say, tread lightly at the beginning to make sure that you have a visceral connection with this thing that you're doing and that you retain the power, if you will, to change it. And by by the power, I mean just kind of the free will to be able to say, oh, yeah, I'm going to adjust this wording or I'm going to, you know, focus on this thing. Because most of what happens with people is we tend to keep niching tighter and tighter as we go out there because we practice, mm-hmm. we try a message and the message lands and this is great. So then we do the next message, that one bombs. So mm-hmm. we we adjust, we adjust our audience, we adjust the messaging, we adjust how we niche those, the, the audiences, all of those things. I think it's when you can keep an attitude of experimentation and your organization understands that too, then I think you've got great alignment to go mm-hmm. out and do what you want and not feel like you're going to wind up in a hole. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And even if you work for yourself, being able to continue to kind of put that mindset on for yourself yes. too. Right. Yeah. There was uh, something that's maybe a bit tangential to that, but 
You say in your book, if you want to build authority, you're in the publishing business. And I'm wondering if you can expand on that idea. What does that mean? Yeah. So a lot of people think, oh, if I'm going to be an authority, I have to write or I have to speak. Well, yeah, but you actually have to publish it. You actually have to put it out there in public for other people to see and accept or reject. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. Like I've met people who say, oh, you know, I have this great idea and here's like a 20 page white paper on it, but that's it. And they've been crafting that thing for three years <laughs> or some scientists have been working on them way longer than that, but they haven't kind of socialized it. That's how I think of publishing is you're socializing your point of view with who you see at that time as your ideal audience. And when you start, you probably have a really small audience, you know, it might just be your mom reading your stuff, but over time by publishing, whether that is you're writing, you're doing blog posts, uh, you're speaking on a podcast, you're speaking on a podium, um, you're doing uh, video blogs, whatever those things are, you've got to hit the publish button. Mm -hmm. And that's what will bring people to you or repel them, which by the way, is also a good thing, right? Because you don't want to spend your time with people who are never going to get it. It's why you don't want to read those one and two star reviews on the Amazon. Like just don't read those. That's not your audience. So it's, yeah, it's, it's very much of, it's very much of a process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that so much. Um, I, I hear, I I mean, I encourage the same thing of, of, folks. And I will talk sometimes with people who say, Hey, you know, I'm interested in writing a book or like, should I write a book? Or maybe it's also a, like a, a text-based product. They want to jump to creating a, a certification or a, a big, deep course, not a little free course or something, but a big product, uh, a big commitment, like say, say a book and I'm like, okay, that's, that's great. Let's see what we can do leading up to that. Like for some folks, sure. Okay. You might want to put it all down in a book. And and if that works for you, great. And then you can build content out of that. But I think for most of us, it actually makes sense to sort of ship that work as you go, those ideas, because not only can you get feedback on them, like you said, and start to understand your audience better and what lands and what, uh, and what doesn't, or like, who it lands for and who it doesn't, but you can also wrestle with the ideas and work through the ideas more and challenge yourself to, you know, kind of explore, oh, well, maybe I need more research on this or more thinking on this. And just as you put it as socializing is so valuable. I've had, I've said that a number of times, including just casually to, you know, friends who are interested in this kind of stuff. And the thing I get back repeatedly is um oh but that's scary (laughs) of course it is Mm -hmm. of course it is that's why you have to do it (laughs) yeah yeah there's no um there's no getting over like there's no skipping over that but also i think that in itself too can be a really wonderful process because you're engaging with that vulnerability that fear you're you're watching it get easier over time and and maybe more comfortable, but you're also really kind of getting to play in that space of doing something that scares you, but also isn't super risky. Like if you pour 
a year into a book and it's a total bomb and fail, you know, that's going to suck more than like one speech or a couple of blog posts. Well, and I think the other thing that people, um, and I, I was guilty of this myself once or twice, is that we can hold on to a concept because we think, oh, if I put it out there, somebody else is going to run with it and take it someplace, you know, before I do. And so I had this, this idea and I, it was my first book idea. And I, I wanted to use the word pollinate to talk about ideas. And I hadn't heard anybody else use that word. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is going to be it. It's going to be this big word. Well, I didn't write that book. And I never wrote even a blog post using that word because in my mind, I was saving that. Mm. Right. So I write a blog post. I don't know, before I did the book two or three years ago. And like, nobody cared. It was like, nobody went, goes, oh, wow. You've explained it to me in some way I never heard before. Nobody cared. It was like a bomb. And I I just laughed at myself. And I said, okay, that's the last time you're going to do that, Rochelle. From now on, when you have an idea, just put it out there, test it, see what happens. Mm -hmm. And it's always, it's always a crapshoot. And it doesn't matter, you know, I've had clients that, you know, you would know their names and you would think everything that they dropped would be a hit and they're not. And it's oftentimes not the thing that you expect. Like the thing that you're really scared about putting out there, people are like, that was fantastic. I loved it. And then the thing you don't really think about are like, are you crazy? Why did you say that? How could that work? Or the opposite, which is that they wind up loving it. Mm-hmm. So until you experiment or socialize, you just won't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I That goes from my experience as well, both myself and working with clients. And even when you've got a lot of data or history on your side or, you know, bigger audiences as well, you still, none of this can is, is a hard science and can ever be 100% manufactured which is maybe also part of the the beauty of it, but you know, you kind of have to, you, you just have to know that it's, there's always some unknowns with it. Well, yeah. And I think the other thing is, you know, when, when I use the word like authority, I think sometimes people think like, uh, you know, there's a formula and that's why I called it the code because it isn't, it isn't a, a, a formula. There are elements that you can mix, but they're different for everybody. And I think it's just really important to think about authenticity within authority because the people that most of us, it depends on like if it's a neurosurgeon, maybe not so much. But for most of us, when we're looking at an authority, we want to see their humanity. We want to see that they're not always perfect. That's why we love seeing a work in progress, like trying out a new concept or, uh, you know, as, as you so eloquently say on, on your website and in your blog, it's, you know, it's the storytelling with heart. It's where do you find that? And how do you pull that out in an authentic way? I do believe that that's inextricably linked with authority. Again, there are, you know, authorities and usually in very narrow, highly technical fields who are all about the business and nothing else. And that absolutely can work. Um, but what is consistently successful are those who are able to really blend in the, you know, the hard facts with their humanity. Yeah. And in your view, how do people who do that well, are there, are there 
qualities that they have or ways that they go about it? Like, how does that look like when it's done well? Well, I have somebody in my mind right now <laughs> who is a, um, actually, I'm just going to say her name because she's out in public. Her, her name is Erica Goody. And she is a CFO and she helps businesses like ours, soloists with um, consultants and coaches. And what she does is she knows her stuff inside and out. Like if you want a financial fact on anything, you want to know about taxes, you want to know how to structure your business, she will give you the answer and she will give it to you quick. I mean, she knows her stuff. If you follow her on social, um, she lives out in this incredibly beautiful rural area and she will take us outside. She'll talk about, um, I think she had a, a, a thing on um, bear spray versus mosquito spray that she managed <laughs> to tie back into taxes. And she's just herself. Mm-hmm. It, she's gloriously authentic, sometimes without makeup, sometimes with her hair up in a ponytail. It doesn't matter. You get Erica all the time. Mm-hmm. And that's just an example of someone who I think is is just seamlessly from the outside looking in, seamlessly putting it all together. Can you do that without being on social media? Of course you can. I mean, that's mm-hmm. just one model. I just don't think there is one way. It's what works for you. Like, I just cannot bring myself to get into video making mode for Instagram. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe I should, I hate using that word. Maybe I should do that to experiment, but I don't enjoy it. So Uh I don't, I just don't want to do that. So I'm going to go do something else with that time to share what I'm doing other than an Instagram video for someone else. An Instagram video could be absolutely the perfect thing for them to get their humanity and their point of view out to the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is part of that authenticity as well. Right. I mean, it, I, I think if you are choosing tactics you hate or projects or ways of working that just fundamentally disagree with you, maybe they go against your values, or maybe it's just not who you are. You know, if you are an introvert and you prefer one-on-one conversations, or you're an extrovert and you love to be out there in groups, whatever, whatever it is, if you're doing the thing that really fundamentally just rubs you the wrong way or feels icky or not fun, um, it, that's that's going to come across and translate. I think there are so many different ways that we can show that we can show up and show up as ourselves um, and choosing what you what you do and what you play with and what tools you use, like all of that's part of it. Yeah. And I mean, you've seen it out there. I mean, when you see somebody and when I say see someone like you're you're watching their stuff in LinkedIn or Twitter or Instagram, you can tell if they're having fun with it or not, if mm-hmm. it feels um, authentic. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not nervous. Like you might see them guesting on something and it's they're nervous. That's OK. That's mm-hmm. human. But right. you can tell when they're kind of enjoying themselves versus really not enjoying themselves at all. And I just think we have the luxury of leaning into, going back to the genius zone, leaning into our genius zone or the things that are going to get us closer to that. Like, you don't want to be doing things that you suck at or things that you're merely competent at. Maybe you do when you first start your business because you don't have enough resources to hire those out, but you get rid of those as quickly as you can. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. 
something else I had I had wanted to ask you, and maybe this also kind of relates to then choosing what we focus on. But when it comes to you know, building your brand and, and getting yourself out there, this current landscape of of media and content is just so full. And I heard uh, Seth Godin recently say something like. Um, I'm, I'll butcher the quote, but it was something to the effect of the, these days of being able to build a like you know quote unquote following, or, you know just gather tons of people to listen to you just because you have access to a microphone are over, and so in such a saturated and increasingly saturated media content landscape, how can people who are looking to become known as authorities and, and build their recognition like? How, how do we respond to that? What are, what can we do? What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, if I had to answer you in one word, it would be niche, right? <laughs> Pick a small subsection because it's, it can feel so counterintuitive by cutting down your audience. You can actually increase your effect, but absolutely you can. And I agree with Seth's comment because Nobody, none of us listen to generalists anymore. And even our celebrities tend to be focused on something that, that we mm -hmm. listen to or watch. So it's finding that slice of the audience. And it's kind of like your genius zone. It, I found most people in business like businesses like we have, it takes a while. Like the first year or two, you're mostly worried about making sure that you can replicate what you used to make at your job. So you're kind of any work that comes in is good work. Thank you very much, so-and-so, uh, for referring it. Yes, I'll take more. Yes, I'll do this. Yes, I'll do this. You just say yes for the first year or two. And then by then, you usually start to realize, okay, so there are some things that are kind of hard to get work-wise, like projects that are hard. And there are things that you know, I'm not really getting paid for what I do best. And if I specialized a little bit more, either in what I'm doing or who I'm doing it for, I could be more effective. So what happens is that that's, that's a, a journey. So the first couple of years, maybe you're doing everything. Um, when you get from the second to the fifth year, you're usually specializing or niching down in some way. And I would argue that that tends to be what we keep doing, right? We might switch a niche sometimes because we might go to a place that isn't successful, right? The, the thing I'm describing is each specialization, each additional specialization is doing more for you. It's increasing your price tag. It's increasing your effectiveness. It's increasing your authority because you're, you're learning more about a narrower area. Um, so yeah, if I had to answer that in a single word, it would be to mm -hmm. niche. But the other is to not spread ourselves too thin, which I guess is related to niching. So don't try to be on YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter. I mean, pick one. Mm -hmm. Right. And if, if you're selling to large corporates, it's probably LinkedIn. Um, if you're selling to creators, it's probably Instagram and find those places where you can really play to your strengths. You get excited about being on the platform, or at least you're not like dragging your sorry self to do it and, and talk to this narrower group of people. Yeah. And I appreciate that you're saying too, it sounds like if for people who are earlier in that journey, just recognizing, okay, you might not have a really distinct specialization or niche 
right out of the gate as well, but you'll find it as you go. Is that, is that kind Uh, kind of the message you're... I'll use as an example a graphic design firm because this happens all the time. So you're you you start a firm. Maybe you were someplace else before, and you start your own firm, and you just do everything for everybody. You need a logo, I'll do it. You need a website, I'll do it. And then, but once you start really specializing, the whole thing can change. I mean, an example that uh, somebody that I worked with had a graphic design firm with, I think, five or six people. And they were kind of doing what I said. They were in a particular geographic area and they were doing whatever they needed to for that geography. But they had done a a specialized website for a financial advisor. And then they got a second one. And then they got a third one. And I think I met them on the third one. Hmm. And and I got to know the owner and and they were saying... I don't, I don't know how to grow. I have to do these projects to keep my people busy, but I'm bored. Mm-hmm. So why, why don't you specialize in financial advisors? You obviously have a knack for this and you realize how many of them there are and how many websites they need and how nobody understands what they're trying to say. And, you know, he did one of those, huh? And it took, I would say probably two years from start to finish, but eventually they created a design firm that only served financial advisors. And yeah, that's an example of how you can take something that's small that all of a sudden now they have, they have a known pipeline. It's a consistent pipeline. Everything that they talk about is geared toward financial advisors. And these are people who own their own businesses, not like somebody Mm -hmm. say at Merrill Lynch. So there is a particular language they use. There's a particular set of problems that they see over and over again that they can help with. And they wound up expanding beyond graphic design um, to digital marketing and digital strategy because they understood that vertical so well. Right. And that probably also allowed them to be able to charge more and be more profitable Ooh, yes. as a firm yes. once you, you expand and you're getting into strategy and things like that too. Exactly. And it's, yeah, it's, it's the, you're able to, it's sort of to my earlier point on authority, you're able to extract value. Right. Because mm-hmm. you could see how you can add value. But the other piece from a business owner perspective is that they had a regular, consistent stream of income. And that was the thing that was so hard when you're relying on projects and you have a, a salaried staff that you've got to mm-hmm. have to feed. Right. Yeah. You've also mentioned through um just you know, this conversation a couple of times about like thinking about what you're your audience actually wants what what people need what they, what's valuable to them and i know you've done um things that something you call a listening tour <laughs> you mind just yes. like elaborating why this is important and, and kind of as you said before too in, in sort of hinting at the value of getting out there and socializing ideas rather than just making one at home in a dark room by yourself and then launching it to the public. Uh, yeah. I've done that too. I've done that too. And the, the sound of crickets is not a pleasant one. Yeah. So the listening tour, the idea behind a listening tour is, is just that is listening. And, and um, when I did my first one or I, my last one, I guess I, um I had an idea that I kind of wanted to, to like a trial balloon that I wanted to put in front of them, but I didn't want to sell them on it. I didn't, I really wanted to hear what they thought. And so I asked, I, I put the questions together ahead of time. I asked people if I could have a half an hour of their time, could probably do it in 20 minutes. Um, 
And I asked them these questions like, you know, what's the biggest problem that you're having in your business? Like, what's the problem that if you could wave your magic wand and solve, like, what would that do for you? So in other words, what are the results from solving that problem? Um, What have you tried to solve that problem before? Mm -hmm. Um, Why didn't it work? And, and then based on what they said, because they didn't always lead to the trial balloon that I had. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't want to float the trial balloon if it wasn't like in the ballpark of what they were looking for. So I would get more information from them. But what was fascinating, um, a couple things. Um, one was that I had an idea of what this product, how I would price the product. And they consistently gave me a number that was two times that. Mm-hmm. And just for fun, I asked one of them, I said, so what, what would, how would you react if you thought this was worth um, 10,000, if somebody came to you or if I came to you with something like that with a $5,000 price tag and she said, I wouldn't even look at it. Look, it's, that's, that's not me. I, I don't want to be in that room. And so price telegraphs value. I mean, we know that, but it was really fun to hear it directly. The other thing that was really helpful was that they told me how they had tried to solve the problem. And so they told me about other solutions, i.e., you know, competitive solutions. And, you know, some of it was, well, I tried to do it myself right? Because they can always try to do it themselves. Somebody else would say, well, you know, I bought so-and-so, I bought this package from so-and-so and what I liked about it was this and what I didn't like about it was this. And so it was hugely helpful. And in fact, um, I didn't try to sell, again, I didn't try to sell any of them on my idea or that they would be the right buyer for this thing that I was creating. In fact, some of them I was pretty clear would not be the right buyer, but um, I asked them, would it be okay if I shot you an email when I put this together just to get your reaction? Like, is this a good thing or bad thing? Get like a quick reaction. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. And so I used that to further tweak the language and mm-hmm. some of the um, the features of it that they were responding to. So it's like, it's almost like having your very own focus group. And a lot of people don't like to do that because first of all, you're asking a favor and you're not selling anything. Hmm. So, oh, I'm using up a favor, but I'm not going to sell anything. Yes. <laughs> Use the favor. Use the favor. Um, and then the other thing is, oh, but I don't, you know, I just don't want to put them on the spot. Well, you're not putting them on the spot because you're not asking them to buy it. You're asking them for feedback. So hmm. it's just such an easy way to get feedback on anything you're thinking about doing before you invest a dime or a, you know an hour of your time in figuring it out. Mm-hmm. And how how did you choose people for that? Like what what people do you do, do you go to? Well, I chose people that were already in my my network, and I thought I didn't know, but I thought they would be kind of the right demographic for what I was looking for, for who I thought the ideal client was. Mm-hmm. In a couple cases, um, someone suggested them to me. Like there was one person I I really didn't know at all, um, but it was clear to me that she could be exactly the right kind of person for this. And it turned out she wasn't, but she was pivotal because she sent some other people to me. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 just all if somebody offers you an opportunity to bounce ideas off of them, you say yes. 
like, yeah. you just say yes, because you just never know what's going to happen. And I think the key, like in most things in life, is to try to think about what's in this for the other person. Like mm-hmm. what's in this? And so for, what's in it for them is if there is a new way to solve a really vexing problem that they have, you're actually helping them. Like they're helping to define the solution. And most people are willing to do that if it's a big enough problem to them. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that's very cool. That's a, a, a great a great strategy. And I love that that statement. If there's an opportunity to to get feedback or to bounce ideas off of somebody else, take it. Because I think we <laughs> often don't do that enough because we tend to stay in our little, you know, bubbles and <laughs> comfort zones more, you know, to get out there and actually engage with folks is a real opportunity. Well, and the ideas that they come up with, I mean, and yeah, the example I always use with this one is I priced the the thing at twice what I was planning to price it at. And so that was great. Same amount of work, twice as much money. Okay. Yeah. So that was easy. Um, yeah, yeah. Aren't you, you glad you asked? asked. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. But it was, it was for them, it was, it was telegraphing the value. Mm-hmm. And depending on what it is that you're selling, you know, your clients might say, yeah, I'd pay a million dollars for that. Or yeah, I'd pay a hundred dollars for that. I mean, you won't know until you ask. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a great, uh, a great thing to leave it on. Great, great kind of mantra um, to leave it with. Is there anything else that you would like to add before we go or any question that I didn't ask that I should have? I think the only thing I would add is that um, authority is worth going after um, as long as it aligns with the people you most want to serve and the area that's going to really hit your genius zone. I I think a lot of folks that are in traditional employment think, oh, I don't need to be an authority. Maybe you don't, but you could be. You could be. And if you have those interests, I would just encourage you to go after it, to start playing in that space, experimenting, socializing, and seeing what happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that. Very inspiring. Well, thank you, Rochelle. You you offer... So really so much in inspiration and ideas, but also some really practical guidance here and, and in everything that you do. It's so practical and, and useful. And there's been a lot of great stuff today that uh, I think listeners can apply and that I certainly take to heart. So thanks again for joining me today. It's just been lovely having you. Thank you, Camille. It's been delightful. Thanks for listening to the Storytelling with Heart podcast. Want to turn your thoughts into leadership and your ideas into words that make a difference? Find me and discover more free resources at www.camilledeputter.com. While you're there, don't forget to subscribe to my email newsletter where I share stories, free tools, and other storytelling guidance. And never forget, your story matters. 